Welcome to the Bible Q&A Podcast, the show that answers your questions about the Bible, Christian theology, and church history. This podcast is brought to you by Risen Ministries and Creation Today. Now here are your hosts, Tim Chafee and Eric Hoven. Hey there, welcome to the show today. We are on our second week of talking about Christmas. Last week we, yeah, last week we discussed some of the uh, the objections to celebrating Christmas that some Christians have made and, and some skeptics as well, but mostly these are coming from Christians. And uh, if you're interested in hearing those, make sure you go back and check out episode 11. In this podcast, what we want to do this episode is to address some of the claims that skeptics make about the biblical narratives found in Matthew and Luke. And they'll say, you know, there's no way you can uh, make sense of the the two different accounts there because they are just hopelessly contradictory. Right, Eric? You've heard that before? I have heard many times that, look, it, with several stories between the, the Gospels that, yeah, there's no way these writers can be talking about the same event because of the differences. Like, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean... The- I think they'll say, yeah, they're trying to talk about the same event, but they just they just contradict each other so right. many times. And yeah, we hear so, we hear that throughout the Bible. Like I'm, I don't know. If, can I give some examples there? Uh, how about before you do that, we just I wanted to tell you because I don't know if I'll get to talk to you before, but I wanted to say Merry Christmas and oh, in honor of that, even though you can't see me right now, Eric, I am wearing my. They call it an ugly Christmas sweater. I don't know why they do it. If you're on YouTube, you can see that it's beautiful. Well, describe got, it, and I'll tell you if it's ugly or not. Okay, well, it's red, and then it's got green dinosaurs all over it. And each of the dinosaurs are wearing, each of the dinosaurs are wearing like Santa stocking hats. So I've got a Parasaurolophus, I've got a, a Stegosaurus. I see, I got Triceratops, T Rex, something that looks more like an Allosaur, and even a narwhal. I'm not sure why a narwhal is on there, but oh. but that's pretty cool too. I think it's a beautiful sweater. And I, I say think it's an ugly Christmas sweater. I think they call it ugly sweater based on who's wearing it, so I'm definitely calling it an ugly sweater on you, okay? <laughs> well, that, that's probably true. <laughs> I, can't, I can't really argue with that one, but it is a pretty beautiful sweater, I yeah. think. Well, I can't, wait. I can't wait to see it. Uh, I'll, be, I'll yeah. be pleasantly surprised, I'm sure. It's almost as colorful as that last rugby jersey I did. Oh, see, yeah, that was kind of ugly, man. I, I don't. I, I saw that and I was like, "What, what were you doing, man? What, what are you, trying to destroy the show here? Is that what's going on?" <laughs> no, I'm just having fun. I like surprising you. I like that, man. That's awesome. All right, all well, right, so what? Yeah, why don't we jump into this? All right, so Matthew, um, when you when you study out, if you were to actually uh, take a chron- uh, chronological look at what's what's taking place in the different gospels, like for example, Matthew. If you go in the order that it's written, Matthew says Jesus was born, then the Magi visited Herod, then the uh, Herod, <laughs> Magi visited Herod, <laughs> then the Magi worshiped Jesus, then there was the flight of Jesus into Egypt. Uh, Herod comes, slaughters the children. After that, they return to Nazareth. So that's kind of the description you get in Matthew. In the book of Luke, when you turn over there, if you were to write things down, this is typically what the one we hear and we read. That's my family reads this at Christmas time. You get Jesus was born. Then there was the angelic announcement. We like acting that one out. Then you have the shepherds visiting Jesus. Then you have Jesus being circumcised on the eighth day. Then you have them going to the temple and seeing Simeon. And then they return to Nazareth. So people read, you know, Matthew and then Luke and some people go, wait, these are, these can't be talking. They're obviously in conflict with one another. 
because they should be saying the exact same thing. Yeah, that, that's what the skeptic will usually say. A lot of times Christians don't pick up on this because we'll read one or the other. And, you know, for doing our daily Bible reading, a lot of times they're separated by a couple of months before you get to the next one. And, and you're not closely comparing notes and seeing where the um, where these alleged contradictions are. The, the main issue, it isn't so much that they talk about different events, but it just seems like the timing of those at first glance seems... Uh, impossible. Did, how long were they down in Egypt? You know, Matthew talks about uh, Jesus being born, and then you know, right away people. The, the, then you talk about the Magi, and then the flight to Egypt. Well, where are the shepherds? And when did they take him to the temple? And when was he circumcised? I mean, where does that fit into Matthew? Matthew doesn't leave room for that, does he? And so that's uh, really where the the problems come in. But um, if there there is a way to make sense of this timeline, and there there's certain things that that people have to understand. Um, and what I'm going to propose to you uh, as far as the way to recon reconcile this is that we need to understand that there's a gap of time in between Luke 2.38 and 2.39. You wouldn't necessarily pick up on this as you're reading it, but it, let me read those two verses. Um, well, at least 38 talks about how they went into the temple and then Anna, uh, you know, Simeon talked to them first and then Anna saw the child and then she comes over and start telling people about what the child would do. And then Luke says this in verse 39. So that was all 38. 39 says, So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And so people assume that right there after the 40th day or 41st day when they're in the temple, they went back to Nazareth. So that doesn't leave any time for the flight to Egypt or, or any of those things. But if we can insert the Magi, Herod's slaughter of the innocent, uh, the flight to Egypt between, um, you know, the shepherds visiting between those words where, where Anna said that and the return to Galilee between 38 and 39. If we insert those events that, um, that M Matthew tells us about, all of it falls into place just perfectly. Mm. But, so, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. I guess in, in my mind, I'm going, I, I'm glad that it all works out. Is this just another one of those scenarios where are we reading these looking for conflict or looking for complementary? Is that kind of how we have to look at this? Um, a little bit. It, part of it is the, the passage I just mentioned is it flows one right into the next. It, it doesn't mean that it has to be continuous. In fact, Luke does this in other places. In fact, all historians would do this where they'll tell you, here's one event, then another event, then another event. And they don't have to tell you, by the way, there's a gap of time between these things. And uh, that's what's happening here. Luke does it later on uh, when he's talking about Jesus being beaten and then bef before being sent out to be crucified, where Matthew includes a lot of other t details that happen in between that. So the same two writers do the same thing in a different context. So it's, it's not... Um, it's not unheard of that they would do this. It's, it's almost as if Matthew was written and Luke was aware of it. And he says, yeah, I'm going to tell you about some of the other things that happened that Matthew didn't tell you about. And so he's filling in some of the details that, because neither one of them are exhaustive. They're just giving us some of the details. But that creates a problem with our nativity. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. Can you guess what that would be, Eric? I know. exactly. I've, I've studied that one before. Uh, the wise men were not around the nativity scene looking at baby Jesus. Right, and that is where uh, why a lot of people make the where they make a mistake here. They think that the magic just be, that's how it's portrayed in movies. That's how it's portrayed in the retellings. That's how we um, 
think about it Christmas time we sing the you know we three kings uh, which the Bible didn't say they were kings they were <laughs> they were magi but we get that idea that they were there that night of the and, birth yeah. yeah the night of the birth and they weren't they showed up sometime later sometime after the 40th day or the 41st day you know Mary had to wait 40 days before she can go to the temple and then they had to offer a sacrifice of two turtle doves um, to for for her ritual purity um, after after having a male child and so that's what they did so it, so the the timeline would be you know Jesus is born in Bethlehem just as prophesied in in Micah then eight days later he's circumcised and then on the 40 40th or probably the 41st day I think they had to wait 40 days and then the next day they could make the the sacrifice but maybe it was at the same time and then after that sometime in the next year or so the magi visit and then because the magi visit that's when herod gets word that hey wait the king of the jews had been born um tell me more about this tell me where he's been born and then uh i can come and worship too and of yeah. course that's where the the magi pick up that he's he's not really interested in doing that and uh, so they went they returned a different way and then Herod went to Bethlehem. Well, he sent his soldiers to Bethlehem to slaughter the innocents. And of course, that's when uh, Jesus, along with his parents, were, went down to to Egypt. And the notice how they both talk about how they went back to Nazareth. Right. But um, Matthew tells us some more details, and this is key as well. It seems as if they were actually living in Bethlehem for a while. When the Magi visit, they go to Bethlehem. And this is within that first year, maybe even up to two years, they go to see the child, not the infant. Um, the, the, so that and Herod wants to kill all the ch children up to two years old. Um, so it, all the male children up to two years old. So he's covering his bases there. Maybe Jesus is already a year old, maybe even closer to two years old when the Magi come. Um, but then it says this in Matthew 2, verses 19 through 23, because during that time, uh, Joseph and Mary did not take Jesus back up to Nazareth yet. They were still down in Bethlehem. And it says, now when Herod was dead, uh, so this is when they're now down in Egypt because they'd been warned to go down to Egypt to get away from Herod. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. So where are they going to go back to? It says to, to Israel. Israel. Yep. Okay. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. So they were planning on going where? Back to Ju uh, Judea. Judea, which is where Bethlehem was, not where Nazareth was. Nazareth was in Galilee. So it looks like they were planning on going back to Bethlehem still, which is that was where Joseph's um, ancestors were from. Maybe even he was from there when he was younger and he moved to Nazareth later on. We're, we're not sure of that. But then it says, and being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. So all of those details fit just fine when you understand the Magi didn't show up immediately. Uh, they, they showed up sometime after that 41st day and uh, in the next year or two. And then um, they were still in Bethlehem at that point. Then they go down to Egypt when Herod, before Herod slaughters the innocents. And then they come back and they're planning, it seems like, to go back to Bethlehem. But instead they go up to Nazareth. Now Matthew and Luke fit perfectly. 
You know, it's interesting because I think of J. Warner Wallace, who's a cold case homicide detective, and he applied mm -hmm. his cold case homicide detective skills to scripture. And he said, these kind of com uh, complementing stories, where at first it sounds like, wait, is that contradict? And then when you get the stories together and they can actually complement, he says, this is a, a testimony to the, to the legitimacy of the writers. It actually helps the story because he's again applying the same thing when he's talking to witnesses when their when their testimonies aren't exactly the same it sounds like they're not in cahoots and as long as they can be put together uh, it, it's actually builds a stronger case so yeah that's exactly right I find and, that interesting. and that's what yep and that's what happens here it happens in the resurrection accounts the post-resurrection accounts that um, you find that throughout scripture when there's multiple accounts of certain things they're not always word for word the same yeah, but and they, that's actually, they do fit together. That's actually, we find out that's actually a positive thing. That's actually better for it. Uh, yeah, exactly. Evidence that it wasn't just collusion uh, of people writing these things. That's pretty cool. Yep. Yeah, uh, Luke wasn't just copying Matthew. He was saying, okay, I know Matthew's already said this, so I'm going to fill in some of the other details that maybe you, you haven't heard and you need to hear. All right, well, how about this one? Um, away in a manger, no crib for a bed. Obviously... Jesus, Mary and Joseph, they went to the inn, which was a big giant, you know, Holiday Inn Express, and there was no vacancies available. So there was a barn out back. They went where the cows were, and we see it in the nativity scene, and baby Jesus was born and laid in some hay in a wooden little crate. All right, how, how accurate is that kind of story, picturesque? thing that we get here uh probably not very accurate and <laughs> right. let's go into the this holiday and shatter especially everybody's... the holiday and express part, <laughs> <right>? <laughs> no but i did stay in a holiday and express come on yeah, that's right so you should be answering this question because you're the expert now. <laughs> yeah, those were good commercials they are um, and holiday and does have really good cinnamon rolls and apparently jesus wasn't eating on those cinnamon rolls in the i hope we're getting paid for that advertising yeah uh, we definitely they are good though I'm just, those don't uh, even need to be paid for those are really good cinnamon rolls i don't right. know i can never afford holiday and so you'll have to just <laughs> <laughs> all right um but most likely actually this this may be surprising for some people because we're so used to that telling of it right uh, you know then there, there's plays that are designed this way where that you know they they joseph and mary are rushing to the town and they're trying to get there because she's you know she's gone into labor and they're looking all over the place right. where uh, you know where can we have the baby and and there's no room at the inn and so finally somebody says well hey you can have this stall over here yeah. go ahead and that's what they take let me get and, old betsy out of here and then she's all yours <laughs> all right yeah but th that's not how the bible describes it um here's here's what it says in luke 2 let me read this uh, joseph also went up from galilee out of the city of nazareth into judea to the city of david which is called bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of david to be registered with mary his betrothed wife who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. So while they were already there, that's when she went into labor. So they, do you think they would have made the trip if she wasn't going to, I mean, if she was already eight and a half, nine months pregnant and she, you know, it was going to be very dangerous for them that she's going to give birth on the road. Basically, I've seen the, the movies, buddy. She is full-blown pregnant I, riding on that donkey, man. Yeah, and I like the movies. I think they do a really good job in some ways. But um, like the nativity story, that one, the director said, I know the Magi didn't show up that night, but they were too good. They were too funny. We had to have them in there. And so that's why they made that decision. But then it says, uh, while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. So they weren't rushing in at the last second. 
And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, here's where the problem comes up. Uh, So, again, they didn't arrive just in time. But most of the misunderstanding about this passage and the reason why so many people get it wrong, I think, is because that translation, no room for them at the inn, is not the best way to translate that passage. What? Um, (laughs) Yep. What? Um, the The word inn is the word kataluma in Greek. Okay. And it typically refers to the guest room. So even in Luke, the same gospel, uh, Luke's the one who said in 2-7 there was no room for them in the kataluma. In Luke 22-11, Jesus tells his a couple of his disciples to go into the city and they're going to meet a man and he's, they're going to say, where is the guest room, where is the kataluma, where I may eat, my, eat the Passover with my disciples? It's the same word. Where is the the kataluma? It's the upper room, is what's being talked about here, mm. and so that because that's where they held the Passover was in this upper room, which was the kataluma, this guest room. So there was no room for Mary and Joseph in the kataluma. Why? Well, it was during the census, and people are returning back to their ancestral homes, their ancestral cities, and so a lot of people apparently were from Bethlehem, and it's there's a lot of people there. So when Joseph arrives at the house of his relatives. Apparently, they've already got other relatives staying in the guest room. Wow! And so, maybe they even and maybe they even got to stay in the guest room for a while until it was time for her to deliver. And instead of delivering in the guest room, which would then make that room and everything that you know, uh, if she bleeds unclean. at all, all of that would it would all become unclean. Yeah, and then nobody could stay there for a while. They go downstairs to the lower floor of the house, which is where the animals some of the vulnerable animals would be brought in during the night in the cooler months and by the way there's a little bit of an argument for december which we talked about last episode um but they would be brought in or maybe not because maybe the animals weren't there at that time right that's what i'm thinking i'm thinking all it says is you know laid it in a manger which is really just the feeding trough which is yeah it's the feeding trough and so he wasn't born in a manger that's what a lot of people get that they that's another mistake and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute people get that idea that they that he was born in a manger. No, he was born in this room that hey, animals could have been kept during the winter months, uh, the, the cooler months, and that would keep them, uh, it would protect the more vulnerable animals, but it also provided heat for the upstairs of the house. You know, <laughs> heat rises. Animals, body and, temperatures and everything. Right, and this isn't something that's unheard of. There are places even in Europe that do this today and still in Israel where there are places like this. Uh, where animals are brought in. And uh, so uh, before we get to that, let me explain another uh, word that Luke uses elsewhere in his gospel. He uses the word for inn and innkeeper, and it's not kataluma. So remember the uh, the Good Samaritan. Yeah. You know, the, the guy's beat up, and you got a Levite and a priest who pass yep. by, and then you've got a Samaritan who comes by, and he helps the guy, puts him on his, on his donkey, I think, and then takes him to the inn. And that's to the uh, Pandokian. And then uh, he takes two denarii and gives them to the innkeeper. That's uh, Pandoke. And he says to them, take care of him and whenever, whatever you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So Luke has a word for inn and innkeeper. And he, it's not the same word he uses in Luke 2 when it's talking about where Mary delivers. Blowing uh, my mind here, man. You're, you're blowing up the Christmas story for me. <laughs> I know. Sorry wow. about that, but but we we got to pay attention to the. This is what we talked about a couple episodes again. Remember when we said some people say they only read scripture. 
Right. Yes. And they, but they wouldn't. They wouldn't understand that there is probably a mistranslation of this word here. Um, how about the earliest English version that we have of this passage is the Wycliffe Bible, thirteen eighty two. And the wording, if you see it on, if you were able to see it on the screen, maybe we'll put it up there if you're watching on YouTube. Um, it's a little hard to read. It doesn't look like English today, but it says, And she bare her firstborn son and wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a crotch, for there was no other, for there was no place to him in no chamber. What word did they use for Cataluma? Or what word did Wycliffe use? Chamber. It wasn't an inn, it was a room. Huh. It was a so that that's the way he translated. It. But what happens? This has become so popular. This idea that there's no room in the end. So it's very difficult for modern English translations to go against that because what happens when people pick up a Bible on the shelf to see if it's a new you know like a new translation? Hey, I wonder if this one's any good. They go to some of their favorite verses, and if those verses haven't been changed, oh, it's a good Bible. Yep. But if they look at one of their favorite verses, wait, no room for them in the guest room. What? And then they kind of go, oh, can't this, use that Yeah, what kind of crazy stuff is this? But this is what's going on. Now, this is in the Judean hill country. And like I mentioned before, in many, uh, many places even today, they still do this. And so here's, here's what happens. Uh, once... Jesus is born, then she she wraps him and she lays him in the manger, in the feeding trough, because that's like a, it's kind of like a crib at that point. It's a good size for that. But um, the there's another place in the Bible that seems to indicate that animals were kept in the lower level of the house. Can you guess where that is, Eric? Uh, off the top of my head here. How about, think back to judges. Who expected an animal to come out of his house? Ah, you're, you're getting me here. I don't know. Somebody who made a rash vow. Oh, Jephthah. Uh, yeah. What did he, what did he vow? Or if, if, yeah, if I'll, I'll, victory, I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house to you. Right. He had no, he wow. never thought that would be his daughter, his only child. Wow. He thought it was going to be an animal. Why would there be an animal in the house? Because that's what they did. That's interesting. And so he thought an animal was going to come out of the house and he would sacrifice that animal. Um, <laughs> And that's why he's so distraught when his daughter comes out first. Because he was expecting it to be an animal. Now, yeah. whether he sacrificed his daughter or not, that's a different an issue, a different subject, and that would be a fun one to talk about. But that is a great question. Of, I know. What exactly happened yeah. there when she went and lamented her virginity? And uh, what, what's... Mm -hmm. oh. Yeah, I've, got a, I've, I've written a, a couple of detailed articles on that. Uh, actually, people can go to the Answers in Genesis website and... Uh, type in Jephthah's vow, and you can see some of the articles about that. I, I'd written a basic one, and then some people wrote back. They were pretty furious, and so I decided to, to reply in in a gentle manner and explain why I hold the position that I do. So out of but, curiosity, um, were they furious because you didn't have Jephthah slicing his daughter's throat? Or? Uh, no, because I think Jephthah did sacrifice his daughter. I think that's what the text clearly says. Um, it's uncomfortable for us, and there's... Uh, we don't have time to get into. I was like, man, all right, I got to end the show. I'm going to go read the article. What? <laughs> yeah, I I don't think we need to make excuses for people messing up in the Bible, like we talked about with Noah That's a, a few point. weeks ago. That's a good point. So a lot of people um, mess things up. It does record lots of stuff. That uh, okay. Well, speaking of the Bible recording lots of stuff, skeptics as far as the Christmas story, a lot of them say, well, hey, Rome didn't require people to return to their home city for this census. And the Bible just made it up. 
It, sh it shows that the Bible has all kinds of made-up details in it. Yeah, you know, the skeptics a lot of times will say things without a basis for it. They just think, well, this seems really strange. Why would they do this? And I, I don't know of any place where they were required to do this. Therefore, the Bible just made this up. Well, maybe the people who were living at that time were privy to information that we're often not privy to. And um, maybe if the skeptic understood that there was a decree by Gaius Vibius Maximus, in AD 104, so this is about 100 years after Christ, it was recorded on papyrus and it's kept in the British Museum, but it commanded residents to, for a census, Roman census, commanded residents to return to their own provinces to carry out the regular order of the census. Hmm. So 100 years later, they required people to do that. Why would we say that, well, they never required that? Um, what if they did before that? Uh, Alfred Adersheim, who's an expert on first century um, the, the Jewish practices and, and beliefs at that time. Here's what he wrote. Um, so it's kind of a long quote. In consequence of the decree of Caesar Augustus, Herod directed a general registration to be made after the Jewish rather than the Roman manner. Practically, the two would indeed, in this instance, be very similar. According to the Roman law, all country people were to be registered in their own city, meaning thereby the town to which the, town to which the villager place where they were born was attached. In so doing, the house and lineage... Uh, of each were marked. According to the Jewish mode of registration, the people would have been enrolled according to their tribes, families, or clans, and the house of their fathers. But as the ten tribes did not return to Palestine, this could only take place in a very limited extent. While it would be easy for, the, for each to be registered in his own city. In the case of Joseph and Mary, whose descent from David was not only known, but where for the sake of the unborn Messiah, it was most important that this should be distinctly noted, it was natural that in accordance with the Jewish law, they should have gone to Bethlehem. So Adersheim went on to point out that Mary may not have been required by Herod's command to return, return to Bethlehem, but she would have gone for several reasons. She may have wanted to remain close to her, her husband. Joseph was technically her husband at that time. Uh, they were betrothed. Um, and maybe she wanted to get away from Nazareth for some reason. Maybe there was some scrutiny. You know, she's... They, they haven't actually consummated the marriage yet, and here she is. She's pregnant. Um, and, of course, she may have understood the prophecy, the Micah 5, too, that he was going to be born in Bethlehem. So uh, Adersheim gives several examples. But there is precedent in Roman decrees that we have that they had to go back to their own city or their own province. And in this case, uh, Joseph had to go back to Bethlehem. All right. Well, according to Luke 2.2, 2, it says the census first took place when Corinius was governor of Syria. Um, I know you've mentioned this before. Historians agree Quirinius didn't become the governor of Syria until AD 6 or AD 7. Jesus would have been born, you know, several years earlier. Uh, isn't Luke wrong when he says that the census took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria? Yeah, I think this is another case where we might want to give the author a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. Uh, Luke is very meticulous in recording certain details, and he's been shown, uh, like in the book of Acts, just in one chapter, there are there's detail after detail after detail that archaeology has shown Luke was exactly right. The the names that he called, you know, the titles that he gave to the people in different places, and um, you know, just the geography, all of those things he was very accurate about. And in this case, there are a, a few different solutions that have been proposed to show that this this is not a problem. This is not a contradiction. This is not uh, a historical. You know, it actually is accurate. The first one is probably the easiest one to understand. 
Uh, so it says the census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. That word first is from the Greek word protos, which can also be translated as before. So if it were translated oh, as this sentence, you know, then it would be this census took place before, before he was Quirinius was governing Syria. Um, most people don't go with that one, although that's a possible solution. Uh, the second solution that's been proposed is that Quirinius may have actually been governor of Syria on two occasions, once at the time of Christ's birth, and then a little bit later, you know, a, a decade later, he was again. Um, this is the argument that Norman Geisler makes uh, in his book, When Critics Ask. He says there's a Latin inscription discovered in 1764 that has been interpreted to refer to Quirinius as having served as governor of Syria on two occasions. Um, the third one is a little bit more complicated, and uh, this one may be maybe the the best one, but um, it, it could be that all three are right, actually. But the official governor of Syria at Christ's birth, as far as we know, was a, name, a man named Quintilius, not Quirinius, Quintilius Varus. But he was not a good leader. He lost three legions of soldiers in a battle in Germany. But Quirinius, not Quintilius, but Quirinius, the guy that Luke mentions, was a strong military leader who put down the Hasmidean, uh, a rebellion in Asia Minor, not the Hasmidean, the Hamanadensian, there's quite a word there, a rebellion Asia Minor. So when it came time for the census to be conducted, Caesar Augustus sent Quirinius to deal with the explosive region governed by Varus, the Quintilius guy, um, essentially elevating Quirinius to the position of a governing authority, even though he wasn't the actual governor at that time. Uh, so he would have been higher than Governor uh, Varus at that time. Also, although it's often translated as though a lot of times people say Luke translated that, you know, a lot of translations will say that Quirinius was governor of, of Syria. Yep. The Greek word actually says that he was governing Syria. It's talking about an action that he's doing. It's not saying this is his official oh, title. title. Luke didn't use the official title. Um, so he was in charge of that region during the time of the census, not that he was necessarily the actual governor. So that explanation is a little harder to follow but it seems to work well. And really, we only need one of those three to be accurate, and they might all be accurate to some degree. It's amazing when you so, get a little bit more historical context, how much it just, once again, goes, all right, it fits. It really can fit without a problem. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, we just have too many people who are looking for problems and, and trying to say, look, the Bible has errors because they don't want to believe. You know, there are just some people who don't, they just want to challenge what the Bible says. And rather than giving the authors a, a bit of the benefit of the doubt, these guys weren't living long after the fact. And they had access to certain records. And Luke is including these important details, these historical details, for a reason. He wants to show you when this happened. If if he wasn't sure about when Quirinius were, he could have left it out. That's true. But he includes it because he wants people to know when it happened. Um, so yeah, there's several different ways to answer that one. All right. How about this one? Matthew chapter two, uh, we get the story of the star that the wise men followed. What in the world was the star? I've seen the movie of the guy who spun back astronomy and took our modern day computer models of what happened. And you can go back to here's the day and here's the star and this is what they followed and and he gave you the wrong conclusion. Uh, right? <laughs> I watched that DVD you, three you, times, man. I thought you were talking about the the animated story last year. Was that called the Star? Oh. Or the <laughs> no, <story>? not that one. <laughs> that was kind of funny, but um, well, 
let's why don't we read that passage first? It's Matthew two one through eleven. Um, okay. If you want, I'll. You want to do it, or you want me to? I'll read this one. You read the last one. Okay. You read all, all right. Yeah, you read the last one. All right. Pay attention, everybody. We're reading scripture. That's when everybody falls asleep. Don't fall asleep. Listen to this. All right. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So there we get the star. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of all people, of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judea, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. All right. So the star is mentioned about three different times there. Yeah. You have the first mention, you know, when the Magi arrive and they um, get to Jerusalem, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, there's some people who say, well, the, the star appeared in the eastern sky because that's what it means in the east. And uh, But then why did they travel west? <laughs> um, so it's, that's not, it's, it's saying when they were in the east, these are magi from apparently ancient Persia. That's where the magi were from, that class of people. Uh, so they're coming to Jerusalem. They saw a star that guided them to the land of Israel. And if they they think that the star is heralding the birth of a king, the natural place to go would be the capital. So they go to to Jerusalem. Hmm. It doesn't say that it guided them the entire time. It's just that they saw the star there and they knew they had to travel that way. And um, so they, they go to Jerusalem and apparently they're expecting that the people in Jerusalem are going to be anticipating this as well. They must have seen the star, but apparently not. Yeah, because Based even on, after they left him, it says when uh, they departed the king and behold, a star, the star which they had seen in the east went before them. So it's like, oh, yeah, it appeared it again. again. So, yeah, so the people in Jerusalem apparently were oblivious to this. Yeah. Uh, so it doesn't seem, well, that, that's an important point we'll bring up in a little bit. Uh, the second time it is mentioned, yeah, you just talked about it when they, um, after, after you know, they Herod, King Herod. Yeah. Well, before that, the second time Herod had, had called them secretly and tried to determine when the star appeared. Apparently he didn't, he wasn't aware of it. And then they found out, you know, they found out the child was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. That was right before that. That's what the, um, that's what the experts were telling him because of the prophecy. They expected that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And then the last one, it's, yeah, when they departed from the king, the star appears again and it guides them right to the house where Joseph, Mary, and Jesus were. And again, yeah. not the nativity, 
um, this is where the child was, and um, this this he's maybe already a year old or so, uh, maybe several months. But there are a lot of explanations people come up with that I think are inadequate. There's one that that there was a supernova, you know, where the star explodes and it gets to be a really bright. Uh, yep. in, in our sky for a short time. But if that were the case, the people of Jerusalem would have seen that too. That would have been and, recorded throughout history, actually, even in secular. Yeah, time. yeah, definitely. Yeah. And and they would have seen it just like the Magi would have seen it. But, if, you know, Herod and his people had, didn't see it. They're, the the most common view, and I think this is the one you were probably talking about, is that it was some sort of conjunction, which happens when a, um, a, a planet uh, will pass in front of uh, either another planet or another celestial object, and it creates it, it makes it brighter. Yeah, um, there was that's a, the one there, that the video was talking about. Yes. Yeah, there are two different triple conjunctions around the time of Christ's birth. So, because of what retrograde motion, because the you know the planets outside of the Earth's orbit, like Mars and Jupiter, they're also moving around the sun. But uh, because the inner ones usually go faster than the outer ones, sometimes it looks like they pass each other three times. And it's called, it gets a little bit, there's prograde motion, then retrograde, then prograde. Um, and, but anyways, look it up if that's confusing to you. Um, <laughs> it's really confusing if you believe in that the earth is at the center. Then you have to come up with all sorts of weird explanations. But, um, so you had one between Jupiter and Saturn in 7 BC, which is probably too early. And you had one between Jupiter and Regulus. Uh, in 3 BC, and that's the one that a lot of people I think stick with because Jupiter is like uh, is named after the after the king of the gods, Roman king of the gods, and Regulus also refers to the king. And so here you have this the king planet and the king star, and this has to indicate you know the child being born. But again, why didn't why wasn't anybody else aware of this? Mm. And how would that guide you right to the house? And why would it? I think because of the the triple conjunction because it, it happens once then it happens again then it happens again that's i think that's where people say well this is why it went away for a little bit and then it reappeared um but the people there weren't even aware of it at all and then there was a single conjunction between jupiter and venus in 2 bc and so these are these are some of the things that people point to but um while these might be good signs in the heavens for something happening they don't fit what's going on in the narrative. Herod likely dies in 4 BC. Okay, so if that's accurate, which is generally accepted by historians, the the common explanation, the real popular one about the conjunction between Jupiter and Regulus or Jupiter and Venus, those are too late. Okay, it has to be before Herod the Great dies. The star was seen by the Magi when they were in the east. And again, the people in Jerusalem apparently weren't aware of it. So it seems like something that was primarily for the Magi. And then it disappeared for a time, and it reappeared uh, when the wise men departed from Herod, and then it guided them right to the house. That's pretty unusual behavior for a conjunction of planets, isn't it? That, to take you right to a house, that's, that's where I never got it. I'm going, I'm go it just never made sense to me. It, right, it uh, doesn't. That, that's something that everybody would be able to see, and it would not guide you right to a house where they were staying. It's, those actions just don't match a supernova. They don't match comets. They don't match conjunctions. All these different things that, that could appear in the night sky that could be uh, signals or signs that something important happened, and, and those, God could use those things if he wants to. But I think there's a couple of explanations that are better. Um one, that God just provided supernatural light to guide them at appropriate times during their journey. Some, some people think this is God's Shekinah glory guiding them, you know, this mm. light that, that was seen in the temple. Um, or, and I think this is probably a better, 
maybe not better, but I think it, it I think it's a better explanation. I think God sent an angel to guide them. Angels are often referred to as stars in the Bible. That's uh, they're, they're used, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're used interchangeably at times in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, the, the angels were involved in a whole bunch of the events surrounding Christ's birth. Uh, that they spoke to one of them spoke to Zacharias when he was serving serving as priest in the temple. Um, one uh, appeared to Mary, another appeared to Joseph multiple times. Uh, one appeared to the shepherds. So you got, and then a bunch of them appeared to the shepherds. Yeah. So you have a whole bunch of angelic activity taking place. It wouldn't be surprising if there was an angel guiding the magi right to where they needed to go, and. Both of those explanations, God providing a supernatural light or maybe his Shekinah glory or an angel, both of those can become personalized. They can they can uh, come and go as they please in the sense that you know, they, they can guide them right to Jerusalem, disappear for a while. Ever, not ever, the rest of the people aren't seeing it. It's just the Magi who are seeing it. And it can take you right to the house. So oh. I, I think those explanations make a lot better sense of the Christmas star. Yeah, some of the other ideas are really cool. And it's neat to see like a planetarium show where they're they're explaining how these things can happen and and um, it, it would be you know we like it because it's like oh wouldn't this be cool if it was a conjunction because then God used the natural world and He used something yeah. that we can check by science that this is exactly what it is but those explanations fall short of the rest of the details in Scripture. We don't have to shy away from the miraculous. That's for sure. No, especially when we already have in the context a whole bunch of miraculous things going on. Yeah, it's a virgin giving birth. I mean, that's a pretty big one right there. <laughs> right, it's the Son of God becoming a man. <laughs> that's another really you know, big one. Being born into this world. Of course, as we talked about in the last one, he actually, the incarnation was actually nine months prior to that's that. Right. Um, but you've got the angels appearing all over. You've got, yeah, there's, there's so much going on. Again, it's not a problem if an angel appears to guide the Magi whenever they need it. So I think that one is probably the best explanation, but I would, um, I don't think we need to be dogmatic on it, but we should, whatever explanation we come up with, it should match all the details in the text, not just some of them. I agree. I think it's fantastic that to, to look through this and actually take some things that look like problems that I hadn't even seen before and then explain them away and go, well, wait a minute, when you understand this, the historical context or the things like this, it, it just, once again, it brings the Bible even more to life uh, as I dig in and study it more. I think that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. So wow. I, is that it? Well, I mean, so thinking through it, uh, number one, you're wearing a really ugly sweater. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we've yep. got we've got a, the last episode. Hey, it is okay, at least from what we've studied, it is okay to celebrate the birth of Christ. And it really doesn't matter when you do that. You can do that any day you want. You should do it every day of the year. And we picked December 25th to do it. And the supposed contradictions end up being complementary, not contradictions. So, right. wow, it seems to me, you know, once again, the, the Bible has an incredibly robust... Um, Robust, uh, what's the word? Defense. Well, defense, yeah, it's robust defense. It, it's, it's historically accurate. These, they were not making these things up. They're, it's not full of errors and contradictions. These things make perfect sense when you just dig in a little bit and you see how they fit together. And, um, you know, like we said in our last, last episode, you don't have to celebrate the, the birth of Christ if you if you don't think that you should, and then don't. Uh, but whatever you're doing, if, if you're a believer, do it under the Lord. Uh, yeah. If you are somebody who celebrates Christmas, I hope that you have a very, very Merry Christmas and you yes. have a wonderful time, hopefully with family and friends, and that uh, the true meaning of 
uh, that this season will will shine forth, that uh, people will understand that the reason we celebrate is because God sent his son into this world because we needed a savior. We could not save ourselves. We needed the son of God to save us. And that's why he came. It wasn't so that we would have a, a, you know, a heartwarming story of a baby being laid in a manger, uh, even though those things are it's wonderful and it gives us some warm fuzzies. It's ultimately so that he would go to the cross and that he would be tortured and beaten and crucified and die the most horrendous death we could dish out. And then God would raise him from the dead, showing him that he has power over the grave. This is why he came, is to redeem us from our sins, to, to, to take our place on the cross and uh, so that we can be forgiven and we can dwell eternally with the Lord. You know, God has put together just a, an incredible, amazing, I hate to use the word story here, but I, I, I think people will know what I mean by that. It's, it's not fictional. This is something that really happened. And it's just beyond anything man could ever dream up, mm-hmm. you know, what God has done. And it's, he should be worshipped and praised uh, throughout all eternity. And he will be um, by all who believe in him. I just hope there's going to be a lot more who believe in him. Amen to that. And that's why we're here and that's why you're here listening to this is to equip yourself to go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news with a lost and dying world. I don't know what you've done already today, but man, let's get busy focusing on sharing God's love with a lost and dying world. You know, Generation Z, it is said that less than 4% of Generation Z has a Christian worldview. That means there's a lot of opportunity out there. Go find somebody. You don't have to get you an old one. Generation Z are the young ones. Go find somebody and share the truth of the message of Jesus Christ with them. Amen. Awesome. Well, Tim, thanks, man. I really appreciate this. This has been fun. Yeah, it has been. All right. Well, hopefully we answered all of them. But again, if you got other questions about it, um, send them in to BQA BQA at creationtoday.org. Thanks for tuning in today on the podcast. Again, have a very Merry Christmas and uh, praise God for all that he's done. You've been listening to the Bible Q&A podcast. If you have a question you would like Tim and Eric to address on the program, please send an email to bqa at creationtoday.org. The views expressed on the Bible Q&A podcast do not necessarily represent those of other ministries with which Tim and Eric are affiliated. Thank you for listening.